two weeks from this weekend, uh, I am t- on a Memorial Day weekend. It's a holiday for three days, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But on Saturday and on Sunday again, I am offering two days of studying the Brahma Viharas. So I'll talk about them a little bit today more, but just to remind you what they are, if you didn't know about them to begin with, uh, they're uh, four um, sublime, they call the sublime states of mind, other than confused and depressed and angry and exhausted and all the unpleasant, painful states that the mind can feel, it can also feel what are known as um, sublime. Um, It's the beginning of a poem, but I don't know right it. I have to look that up. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footsteps in the sands of time. I don't know who wrote that, but I learned it from my father when I was a child. He's long gone, and whoever said that, I don't know. But he said he learned it in grade school and had to continue, so knew it all of his life. But sublime, sublime means it couldn't get better than this. And the four sublime states are a state of mind that is so completely open to loving that it doesn't have any room for anything else. It's so busy loving everything. Wishing it well, just because it is. Uh, A book that I know I've mentioned before and I'm mentioning right now is called When I Meet You, I Bow. And it's written by Norman Fisher, who's a good friend of mine and also a wonderful Zen teacher. And now that the book has been out, oh, it's by Longfellow. Thank you, Victoria. (laughs) Thank you very much. I've never known that. So there you go. Uh, um, Norman wrote a book called When When You Meet Me, I Bow, or When I Meet You, I Bow. When you meet me, when you greet me, I bow. Norman Fisher, and it's a word. It's not a long sentence like when I greet you, I bow. It's something like hello. No, but it's not just hello. And it's not just like most many greetings that we make when we meet people, where we tell them what time it is, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, It's just really announcing the time. Uh, It really means uh, I, uh, I bow to you out of respect for the fact that you're a human being and continuing to be a human being, even though it's hard to be a human being because there are so many things that are difficult and so many uh, ongoing difficulties to meet as a human being. doesn't mean life is terrible. It means it's a series of challenges that to hang in, you have to keep on going and you have to keep being all right. So when you meet somebody and you recognize them, you acknowledge, I, I acknowledge that you're a person. Like, that's a hard thing. So I bow to you. It's a, it's different from the namaste of Indian languages. Namaste means I honor the light with you. I would think that when I greet you or when you greet me, I bow, has to do more with acknowledging your courage. 
that it's courageous to be a person and keep on going. Anyway, uh, why did I bring that up right now? Wait, wait. When I greet you, I bow. There's some reason why I wanted to do that. Making a point that it's wisdom to realize that uh, everybody, just like me, is wanting to have this life work out. So those of us who know each other and people, those of us who don't, we are all one way or another trying to make things work out. And it's honorable. There's a poem by a Palestinian writer, uh, and the poem is called Kindness. Um, kindness, I didn't write that down either for, for sharing with you, but it'll come to me in a minute. And it, it, all, it, also, it also means that in this difficult path through life, the best I can do is to remember to be kind because it's a hard path for everybody. But it's also a path that has remarkable things in it. And as a human being, we have the remarkable capacity to have minds that greet everybody with kindness. If we know them and if we don't know them, just out of respect for their human being and they have pains just like every other human being. That sublime state is free of enmity. The first thing I learned about metta practice was the first kind, the first phrase that we repeated over and over to ourselves. I repeated over and over to myself, may I be free of enmity and danger. And I really misunderstood it. I thought it meant, um, may I be free of enmity, that meant that may I be free of other people's enmity that might put me into danger, people coming after me with some malintent. And I really soon discovered that what it had to do was, may I be free of enmity, may I not meet anybody with malintent. And it's a, really a prayer for my own comfort and my, for my own ability to live in the world. May I be free from enmity and the danger it presents to my own good heart. And what would we be like if our mind were really free of enmity? We would have uh, compassion for other people, no matter who they were, because they realize they're a person and they're suffering. We would have delight in other people's pleasure because we realize that it's not all difficult life. In between the pleasant moments and the easy moments, there are difficulties, but there are also pleasant moments. When you see somebody enjoying a pleasant moment or a respite from really difficulty, to be able to say, in essence, May you enjoy this period of respite. May you be well. Maybe, may you discover parts of yourself you haven't seen before now that your mind is lifted up. So that's another wonderful mind state. Another wonderful mind state is to have a mind with equanimity, which doesn't mean a mind that's tranquil, and never gets excited, and never gets distressed. It means a mind 
that can be peaceful and tranquil and alert at the same time and gets frightened or startled or uh, somehow confused, but it's able to write itself back. It's able to like bend over and catch itself and come back and get its balance back. Equanimity doesn't mean it never budges. It means it finds itself a ballast. I always uh, think of equanimity as being ballast in the bottom of a boat so it doesn't tip over quite so much. Many years ago, like 40 years ago probably, uh, when I just realized that in fact I, I, I was becoming um, uh, really a dedicated student of Jack Cornfield, who was my principal teacher. And I said, well, I admire you so much because you seem to me to have a lot of equanimity at the time. I remember where I was sitting with Jack when I said that. And I was, I am 10 years older than he is. And in some ways, I had by that time gotten married. I was a psychologist. I had four children. He wasn't quite married. He, or he, he had just gotten married, yeah. He'd just gotten married and his child had just gotten born maybe so i was kind of along on the path of life but i admired him tremendously for what i intuited from his teaching was his equanimity and i said i wonder if you think this is a little bit brash the student asked to her teacher i said i think you have a lot of equanimity and i admire that do you have a lot of equanimity so I, that's what i wonder you think that's brash or uh, chutzpah or uh, what? And he said, yeah, you know, I think I do. And I think he does. And I think he still does. Uh, so that's what equanimity is. And I think equanimity and uh, rejoicing in other people's current pleasure or joy and wishing well to everybody because whatever's happening, they're a result of that. How they feel is a result of what they're going through. And letting compassion arise when uh, things are difficult for them. You see somebody in some sort of a struggle for compassion to arise in you. And compassion, I'm quite clear, is different from feeling the feeling that other people have because otherwise we'd be exhausted in the world all the time, looking around at other people struggling. I think compassion is exactly intuiting what people feel and having the feeling arise in you, I wish I could help. That's really what I think it is. It's the impulse to soothe people or the impulse to make things better. And all four of those states really appreciating and wishing well to all beings just because they're a being making it through this life and to be inclined in the direction of responding with compassion because it's always the right answer to every like in jeopardy where they show you the answer what's the question i said what if they turned over the board and every answer was compassion and you had to trace it back you could do it People sometimes say to me when they're um, training to be meditation teachers, they say, well, I got it how to give instructions and I understand how to uh, 
uh, answer questions about focus and uh, continuity. But I'm a little bit um, worried about when I ask a group of people and I say, does anybody have any questions? Because what if they ask a question and if I don't know the answer? I said, well, you do, though, because the answer to every question is compassion. So anytime someone asks something, even you think, uh-oh, I don't know the answer to that, you say, thank you so much for that question. It's a really good question. The answer is compassion. And then you work it out in your mind because the answer is always compassion for whatever, for people, even in, well, we'll do it more on that weekend. So what I, what I am inviting you to do, um, whoa, I didn't mean to make such a long invite. I'd like you, I'd like to invite you to, it's a preview to today anyway. I'd like you to inv invite you to sign up for that weekend. Now, it's a Saturday and a Sunday. And if you're at home like you are, or in even in California or in Panama, wherever you are, the times are 10 until noon and 1 until 3 on Saturday and on Sunday of that day. So in a certain sense, they're four two-hour classes. But I am inviting you to think of it as a two-day retreat. And wherever you are, to start with us at 10 o'clock in the morning, spend the day five hours until for you, you don't have to, obviously, because you know, once it's the uh, midday break, you can be doing anything. But if you want to take five hours to be quiet, bring your lunch, prepare your lunch, we'll do two hours, and then there'll be a two-hour lunchtime break, and then two more hours. So it's like two retreats, which you're doing at home. So that's it. That was just the invitation to that. And today is talking about how those four themes are going to get developed. The retreat is called uh, Building a Wonderful Mind, I think, or Cultivating a Wonderful Mind, I think it's one of those. But it has to do with a wonderful mind. And I think that when I started uh, 45 years ago on this particular path, the emphasis was on cultivating a strong mind. Uh, it was a little bit of heroic practice. How long could you sit? How, how seriously could your mind not waver from where you were supposed to pay attention? Um, the truth is that if someone had asked me, well, they did one day, uh, Nyosho Kempo, I remember, who was a very well-known and revered Tibetan teacher, gave a talk at Spirit Rock, or before Spirit Rock, gave a talk at some retreat that I was at before we'd even built Spirit Rock. And I remember him saying, the most important thing that you can bring to practice is clarity of intention. Uh, what is your intention for practice? And I felt, I didn't announce it to anybody, I felt very awkward about that in my mind because I didn't feel like I had a strong intention that I wanted this or that to happen. My, my intention in starting was I wanted to do something that everybody else was doing in the 70s. And everybody was going to a meditation retreat or everybody was getting initiated into this or that or the other thing. 
It was the hip thing to do. The cover of magazines. Uh, the Beatles meditated. The Maharishi Yogi. Everybody was getting uh, uh, a magic mantra from the TM people to practice with. And I really did not know when I signed up for uh, a Vipassana retreat, a mindfulness retreat, what it was going to be like particularly, or what my, I certainly didn't know what my goal was. Um, so I was a little embarrassed in my mind because here's Nyosho Kempo saying the most important thing is to have clarity of purpose. And I didn't have clarity of purpose. I was doing it because it was hip or groovy or people were doing it. Many years later, I remembered as it became clear to me what really I wanted to do. Um, I felt a little embarrassed in my mind. So at that point, I would not have said to you <laughs> because I didn't know really what I was hoping to accomplish by this. But now I do know. I was um, uh, helping facilitate a, a, um, a retreat day at a friend of mine's uh, wonderful home and the land around it up in Sonoma County two weeks ago. And it was a present that we had offered to uh, many of my friends, students who are uh, in any in any phase of the graduate student. My friend teaches at the graduate school at Berkeley, graduate school in business. And his expertise is not only in art entrepreneurship, but his expertise is also in uh, a sustainable world, entrepreneurship in a sustainable world and sustainable agriculture and sustainable food sources for the whole world. So, and he's been doing that for a long time. So he has students who are quite young and still in graduate school and others who are along and have been out and have their own uh, organizations who are working in that field now. And it was just to come to his home where he has a beautiful, amazing garden uh, with a rose garden that's amazing and uh, um, a citrus garden that's amazing and an herb garden that's amazing. And instead of, and so all these folks, lovely folks came, all working in the field of making this world a livable place for their generations and the next generations. And it was a day of being in the country and having the pleasure of being away and seeing this beautiful land and of talking about their work and of having a lovely, sustainable lunch. And uh, we were planned to have a meditation. So I led the, I gave a little talk before it. And the meditation was not close your eyes and sit still. The meditation was don't, don't sit, stand up, don't close your eyes, don't talk. Don't talk to anybody for the next half hour. Walk around in these gardens and uh, look at things and smell them and taste them if it's an herb and just be as present to in all your senses as you can possibly be. How does that sound to you, by the way? Does that sound good? 
you're thinking I could do that. I could invite people to my house and say, let's just go outside and not talk to each other. Let's just hang around, smell the roses. Honestly, sometimes I thought about during this experience, I thought about when we say, um, well, I'm just not, no, not much. I'm just sitting around watching the grass grow, meaning to say nothing is getting accomplished, but sitting around and watching the grass grow is enormously soothing to your mind. And so maybe not watching the grass grow, but watching the roses open. I was thinking about that as we walked around in the rose garden, that, which is amazing. Um, in every clump of roses, there would be the ones that are just now perfect, open, glorious. The ones that were perfect two days ago and now are starting to be a little bit uh, fuzzy around the edges. And the ones that are the buds that are started to open and the ones that are still closed buds. And I thought to myself, I feel to myself as I watch that, I think to myself, the Buddha said that the most important thing to realize was that everything is temporal. Everything arises and then it passes. And I've talked to you frequently about uh, the changes in my life in the last couple of years, the death of my husband and the birth of uh, a new great-grandchild and uh, all things that people, their human experiences, people have them all over the world all the time. If not a great-grandchild, a grandchild or a child or somebody's child. And in front of us is, and it's winter and summer and winter and summer, and it doesn't change much um, in Panama. But it changes much here. It gets darker and lighter and darker and lighter. And so there's a way that we intuit in our body that everything passes. And the Buddha said that was the most important thing to know because it gave us the courage to be with life when it's difficult and to rejoice with it when it's not difficult, when it's, when it's lovely, so that we can be at ease in it. It's changed. It's not what it used to be. <laughs> My friends and I, on a regular basis, uh, because, because of our advanced age, are having conversations about what doesn't work anymore. So then <laughs> I look around, not all of you are up to those kind of conversations, but all of a sudden those conversations start happening and people are thinking, who thought it was going to be me? But it is me. And I think that there's a certain amount of uh, uh, ease in saying, well, no, that doesn't work anymore and this I can't do anymore. That comes from realizing somewhere in the marrow of our bones that nothing stays the same. It keeps on changing. It's supposed to. That's how it works. So the whole reason I told you Will's story of being in his house and having that experience, people didn't want to come back in a half hour. They were out smelling and, and tasting. You had to go round them up and say, okay, now come back. It's lunchtime. But... Uh, so that's a that's a meditate. So the whole idea that you have to sit down or close your eyes, you just have to pay attention. You just have to pay attention. 
with all your facilities of paying attention with your eyes and your ears and your mouth, your nose, your skin. To pay attention to the environment around you. And the mind wakes up. And it, not a, it, and, and it appreciates what's a lovely smell. It appreciates. And it learns. Things change. Things change. And I think that's a principal thing to learn so that we move through our lives with a certain amount of grace. And I told you the whole story of going to that retreat because when we were eating lunch and talking about people's experience, people were asking me, people were sharing what they did. Their organizations are doing wonderful things to help communities in need and this age of people in need. And just really, it's so uplifting to hear lovely things that people are doing, motivated to do, out of a feeling that I can do this and I can offer this as my gift to the world. So I was really happy hearing all these young people. And then some youngish man, I don't know how old he was, but uh, I think millennials are up to 30, I guess. So, uh, a young man with an enterprise that he's running said to me, why are you still, why are you still practicing? Why are you practicing? Why are you still practicing? Obviously, I guess he meant to say you have a certain amount of wisdom, apparently, from what you're saying. What are you hoping to achieve still in your practice of cultivating wisdom? So it is a very good question because um, the answer that I gave back to what's your um, what's your intention for practice? What do you hope will happen? I, I said, I hope that I will uh, continue to develop a f capacity for kindness. Um, I come from kind people, uh, which was a great help in my own journey. But uh, and I always thought of myself as a kind person, but I became kinder and more sensitive to other people's pain, maybe more available to other people's pain, and therefore more kind. I said, I really want to purify my mind. That's the name, that's the, that's the fancy word for um, the whole practice of Buddha Dharma, is the purification of the mind, and the purification of the mind of the impulse of aversive impulses. May I be free from enmity and the danger it poses to my own peace of mind. I said I want to have a mind like that, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That's what I want to have. I want to have a mind that's a comfortable place to come home to or to be feel safe in. Everybody got that. Everybody got Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And these people are young. I think maybe Mr. Rogers was already trying to think about my children. How many of you remember Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? And did your children watch it? Did you watch it? Did, uh, 
your grandchildren watch it, all of the above. The thing with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is he was at home. He didn't, he didn't, he did not push anything away, including hard things to think about. That's a whole other story. But I've been thinking about that since a couple of weeks ago when I was at the, at that, at that outdoor smelling and touching and feeling and tasting retreat. And not only because I, not because I want a, a, a Girl Scout medal for having uh, purified my mind of aversion, but because I'd be happy that way. But I'd be content that way. I wouldn't be pleased necessarily, but I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't be angry. May I be free of enmity is that, is it? it means it's an accepting mind that says, well, this is okay. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. That's what we're trying to do. I, one of the reasons that I really want to continue to teach, and I'm motivated to do it, because I inspire myself when I say that, like in public. Because uh, my, really, my principal practice day to day is I am mindful of the arising and passing in my mind of um, aversive thoughts. That I suddenly, my mind is going along and I feel pretty good and things are happening. And all of a sudden, I hear something or I read something about some piece of news that's going on. I can feel my mind getting ready to think a bad thought on people. And I really try to not do that, not do the bad thought, the bad thought. I can, I can realize that anger has arisen. It doesn't, um, it doesn't not arise. I say, I do not want to feed this right now. I want to really hope that everyone feels at ease and stops hurting each other. I remembered Yesterday, because I was preparing for the uh, um, retreat in two weeks, uh, that I was present at, uh, I, I was at a workshop, I was at a big conference of, um, I don't know, the Association for Transpersonal Psychology or something or other. I was at a big conference in Irvine, California, and whatever year it was that the uh, Dalai Lama was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. I was so lucky. I was in some, I was in my life, I happened to be in places where remarkable things happened. So I was at this big conference. I remember there were 400 people there. and. Uh, the, the a principal speaker was the Dalai Lama. It's a long time ago. I think it was eighty nine or something like that. Anyway, uh, everybody came to that particular talk, filled up the whole uh, biggest room in that particular place, and here he was sitting alone on the stage, 
comes out, sits down in an armchair, and he's taking questions. People are coming up to a microphone and asking questions one by one. And uh, somebody came up and asked the question, do you ever get angry? So he said, of course. <laughs> then he laughed because he has a funny laugh. He said, he laughed, of course. <laughs> he has a head. And, and then everybody laughs. He has a very distinctive kind of laugh. And then he says, something happens. It's not what I wanted. Anger arises, but it's not that big of a deal. And it was such a, a, a valuable answer. This is like 30 years ago. And I remember exactly that I was where I was sitting and who I was sitting next to, and that Dan Goldman was sitting right behind me. I just remember the whole the whole business of that of that uh, particular moment because there was something so stunning about that. Of course, he let ah, something happens. It's not what you wanted. Anger arises, but it's not a problem. And that was the end of that. When I, uh, when I, and I hope some of you are together for uh, that weekend, where we'll have a lot of time to practice um, contemplative exercises that uh, give you time to experience the arising of one or another of these um, of aversive feelings and then techniques for helping them leave. I'll probably tell that story again. So um, I hope you come anyway. Um, we didn't sit. I was going to say we'll sit a little bit, but we didn't. Oh, we will soon. I'll give some instructions and then we'll do it. And then we'll have questions and answers after that. I want to say one more thing, though, about uh, those four wonderful states. Cultivating a Wonderful Mind, I think, is the name of the workshop. Uh, when I started to practice years ago, uh, and I, as, as I said, I was unclear about why I was doing it other than everybody else was, I thought it was to be able to develop such profound calm and dispassion that my life, which was not full of terrible things, but full of a lot of things that are upsetting and worrisome, that I'd somehow rise above it and that it would float through my life and nothing would annoy me and nothing would irritate me and I wouldn't get mad about anything and I wouldn't be frightened, mostly that I wouldn't be frightened because I have a congenitally fretful mind. Uh-oh, this could be trouble. I've asked before, how many people have, uh-oh, this could be trouble. <laughs> so this is good for you. <laughs> uh, uh, I still have an inventive mind that habitually says, uh-oh, this could be trouble. And, I, and more or less, most of the time I say to myself, it could be. But it probably isn't, and this is probably your your mind habit that has just offered you this worrisome story, and let's not do that right now. 
I just derailed myself from what I was going to say after that. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, this is what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm always so relieved when it's not exactly there, but then it is. Um, some years ago, not very many years ago, but before the pandemic, uh, uh, Bhikkhu Analyo is a very well-known contemporary Buddhist scholar. Uh, he's, his home is in Germany. He's a native German. He's a very serious uh, academic and spends, I, I think, I remember reading about it. He's a monk, so he lives a monk life. And I think, I don't remember what, what percentage of the week he spends uh, reading and translating uh, the uh, original Pali and Sanskrit texts for what did the Buddha really say. And the other part he spends in several days of silent meditation by himself. And he lives, of course, in some community where anyway it's a community of silent contemplatives. And he teaches, and he was teaching at Spirit Rock. And uh, I, maybe I told you the story one time, but I was there. He was going to teach a class for uh, teachers. And so all the Spirit Rock teachers were there. And all the teacher trainees were there. And he was sitting up in front. And uh, I was surprised that he did not uh, introduce himself with, hello, I'm glad to be here, Spirit Rock, nice to meet you. Uh, but I think there's a culture gap. But anyway, he's sitting up there waiting for everybody to sit down. Got to be the time. And he said, so before we start together, I'd like you to notice if there are any um, aversive aspects, unwholesome energies in your mind. And if there are, use one of the Brahma Viharas, use one of the sublime mind states to sweep them away. And he sat for a minute or two. And he said, okay, now we'll start. I thought, wow, you know, what? that was a really dramatic instruction. Just anything in your mind that's troubling you, use one of the Brahma Vihara, this picture, he really did say sweet, this picture of like a broom that, uh, that you could look in your mind and say, well, I'm a little depressed and fatigued and I'm still worrying about that phone call from this morning and my uh, bursitis in my shoulder is bothering me a little bit. But he said, just use the Brahma Viharas. Like, what? <laughs> you know what's occurring to me? You know those ads for those uh, vacuum cleaners that are like robots and they just r run around in your home vacuuming up here and there and there and there? So just use the Brahma Viharas and sweep out anything that is aversive in your mind. And then two or three minutes later, he said, okay, now we'll start. And he taught something. I don't remember what else he taught, but that was enough. I remember that, that somehow you could just do that. So that's what, that's what I'm talking about here. And that's what I'm hoping to elaborate on further in two weeks. But, and, not but, and I'd like to 
to do some meditation now. And I thought we would do a little bit of all of those for Brahma Vihara. Meditations. So make yourself comfortable. The first thing that I always find myself doing is straightening my back and relaxing my shoulders. I find if I do that, with my shoulders back, and down under my ears so that I'm sitting straight. But not in a tense way. With your hands wherever they want to be. I usually am holding hands with myself. Smile a little bit. If nothing else in your body, if nothing in your body is physically calling your attention, if you're not in any physical distress, then probably your principal awareness is with the breath coming in and out.
Let's spend some minutes with um, a mantra phrase that I'm pretty sure we've used before, but not in a little while, I don't think. The phrase is this, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. What it means to me is may I not fall asleep, may I really see and really feel, really rock, really be very close to whatever arises my mind and my body without resistance without resistance without struggle It's really an instruction for the whole of life. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. It's another way of saying May I be free of enmity. Friendliness is the contrary, the opposite of enmity. I tried to say the first phrase as I breathe in and the second phrase as I breathe out. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. And I find sometimes that it's easier, more comfortable to say that on an in and out breath and then leave the next breath alone. It just comes in and out. And then I say it again on the next in and out breath. Takes a little bit of attention of rushing to get the next phrase. Makes it a more ease-filled meditation. And make this moment fully and meet as a friend. Sometimes you can leave out two breaths and then use it again. You can change it by saying only the first phrase. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet this moment fully. Or may I meet it as a friend. I only say that. 
because the mind that's open to goodwill so that our natural goodwill can manifest needs to be a mind resting in some amount of equanimity and the repetition of phrases and the steadiness of breathing is what builds equanimity both in the body and in the mind. So we'll sit for some minutes that way.
Feel how you feel as you make those intentions for being alert. And as you make the intention particularly to meet each moment as a friend. Sometimes when you sit for a while, some part of your body gets a little tense or a thought arises that's agitating or a worry arises. To be able to think to yourself, may I meet this as a friend? And to the degree that you feel comfortable yourself, having practiced that, meeting the moment as a friend for about six minutes, we'll start to use the use of phrases to confirm our intention is to meet moments as, as friends. When I began my practice, my teacher said to me, say these phrases. May I be free from enmity and danger. I said that to myself. May I be free from enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. I'll say them again for you in a minute. In the beginning, I really didn't really understood what, understand what that meant. May I have mental happiness or physical happiness um, or ease of well-being. But over the years, during which time we have more or less changed as uh, mindfulness teachers in the West to saying more contemporary phrases in order to, we thought, make it more accessible to Westerners. But I thought, just for this morning at least, this is what works very well for me, even when I didn't know what mental happiness meant or physical happiness. I felt like I was saying the same thing that many people have said over and over for many, many years. Maybe because it was mysterious and I liked it. But to the degree that you feel comfortable, and to the degree that you feel comfortable, you say, oh, this is a good way to live, I like this. Say specifically for yourself in your mind. May I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. 
May I have ease of well-being. May I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. May I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Think of someone whom you love enormously. Traditionally, in the time of the Buddha, people thought about the Buddha as a person who they believed and admired and loved without hesitation. But very few of us have access to... um, a love relationship like that. Even the people that we live with in our family. Of course, we love them, but we sometimes cross with them. Think of someone that you really, really admire and love and trust and knows loves you. Could be a family member. And in your mind's eye, make that wish for them. May you be free of enmity and danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being.
Sometimes when we pick someone in that category, we like to feel that they love us equally and bless us with that same blessing. You can think of them saying to you in your mind's eye, may you be free of enmity and danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. See if it feels different to you when you offer those same blessings to people perhaps who are your really dear family and friends. If you can, pick somebody in your family, a parent, a partner, a child, a grandchild, someone that you can imagine blessing with those blessings, maybe with your hands on them. May you be free of enmity and danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. Sisters, brothers, aunts, someone who's very dear to you that you love dearly. Could be a lot of people in that category. I hope there are a lot of people in that category for you. Think of someone that you don't think of often, but that you recognize in your mind, in your family, in your extended community. I always think of the person who's my hair cutter. Or my dental hygienist. I don't think about them really between appointments. They're not intensely connected to me. But what I discover, and I think what you'll discover as you wish them well, is that you like them better while you're wishing them well. I'll let you discover that for yourself. Think of someone, a person who delivers your mail, 
person in the pharmacy, someone that you have at, at least cordial recognition with and see what happens when you bless them. Something will happen different in your mind. See how you feel. Wishing them well. As you might when you next meet them in person. And just for a little bit, think of someone you know who's currently in a difficult situation. A friend, a family person.
of them in your heart mind and make a blessing for them. You can make up the blessing with however words work for you, but something like, I know this is a hard time, or I know you're in pain. I wish you were other. I wish I could help. May this hard time pass. Something like that. Something that acknowledges that you know what's happening. That you wishes to be of help in some way. Just what you would say to a person if it were out in the manifest life, not just in your mind. Make some blessing of kindness, like maybe well, or I love you. You feel yourself getting sleepy. Take a very long depth breath in. And then blow it all out. And one more breath in. And out. The deep breath refreshes your mind. It also steadies it. Think about someone... This is the last person we'll think about now. Think about somebody in the category of this is a good time for them. Something good is happening. They've just gotten a great job or they've just finished their book or they've graduated or they've fallen in love and the person has fallen in love with them back. Somebody that you can really rejoice for. People sometimes think, well, rejoicing for somebody might be the easiest of all this. You don't have to think about who's not well or who's struggling. But rejoicing is not always easy, especially if that person's current good mind state is... Um, in an area that you wish for yourself. 
bring that person to your mind, wish them well, with any phrase that seems natural for you. I'm glad for your success. I'm glad for your good news. May you thrive. With all of these permutations of goodwill, generalized goodwill, goodwill for people who are struggling, goodwill for people who are not struggling, in fact, thriving and uh, rejoicing, especially if they're thriving and rejoicing in some areas that you wish you were. It's a great thing to be able to have abundant and wise enough goodwill to be able to know in the case of other people having what we like, but having the wisdom to say it's not my time, it's their time. Before we open our eyes and talk about it, open your eyes and look at all the people in the room, in their rooms. And you don't know whether at this moment their lives are reasonably tranquil or not. Probably for your best beloveds, you do know. But really what we've done is we've checked around in the mind for the people we care about and wish them well. It's an act of wisdom. And the people who are in uh, a more difficult time to have the steadiness to say, I know this is going on with you, but steady on. It's a thing that people do. I care about you. And in a place where people are thriving and um, really rejoicing, to discover that you really can, in your own mind, brighten your own mind by rejoicing on behalf of somebody else. So look around and wish people well. I guess I'll ring a bell because I have one.
So if you want, we've been sitting actually for an hour and a half. You want to stand up and roll your shoulders a little bit. Bring back and front and back and front, back and front, and roll them a little bit. And shake your arms a little bit. And stab your feet a little bit, just to have the circulation move in them a little bit. Put your arms up over your head if you can. Lace your fingers together and then turn your arms up and lift, 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 lift. Stretch and bring them down. And let's sit back down. And I'm looking at everybody out there stretching and lifting. And I forgot to say that in two weeks when we're back, I just saw them. There's Brahmani over there. Brahmani, wave your hands so they see you. There's Brahmani over there. And what happened to Deshota? There she is. <laughs> There's Deshota over there. So when we are for you online or in person in two weeks, if you're there, both of those days uh, we'll have Brahmani and Shoshoda there so that in between, in each of those segments of classes, one or both of them, once or twice or at various times, will continue what I'm saying by moving it through the body by having everybody who's in the room with us and who's out in the world online be able to move in those two hour times that we're together. Did you want to say something, Brahmani Jashoda? You can say hello or whatever. Go, Brahm. Okay. Hi. Well, it, it's always a delight to be with you still and when we come together. So we hope you join us because the movement, as Syl says, is just an extension of how do we walk in this world and live in this world and carry the Dharma with us. And so we'll just move that experience in through the bodies. Go the, the body is a place that's most easy to pay attention. And then the movement to wake you up and in receive the teachings in a very different way through the cellular knowing of your body. So we love being together, Syl and Brahmani and, and myself, and we hope that you'll come and be together with us. We have such a good time. And it's such a lovely teaching about the Brahma Vihara. I already from just sitting before feel <laughs> open and quiet and soft and Thank you so much, Sylvia. Uh, the, the three of us have taught far and near and up and down in various venues. So I am um, very looking forward to us being together. And uh, okay, let me now, uh, let's, let's go back over here. Because uh, I have one more. I have one more story I want to tell you. It's going to, again, introduce some of the topic we'll talk about next time. But before I do, I'll make myself a note 
Let's say tell da 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 da. Okay, if um, if we have time. Uh, so while we were sitting, among other things, when I thought of people that I was blessing in my mind, I thought of who wrote the poem. I didn't think of it. It just popped up into my mind, which is another example of we don't think. There isn't a little I in there that's thinking. The neurons think. How, how many people have had the experience of saying, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Can't remember his name. It's on the tip of my tongue. Da, da, da. And so, all right, I'm letting it go. I can't remember. And then 10 minutes later, da-da, there it is. As if your mind is going through its, uh, it's going through its Rolodex. Well, it's going through its digital encoding. So the name of the person who wrote the poem on kindness, it's called On Kindness. That's the name of the poem. And the person is Naomi Shehab, S-H-I-O. H A B Nye N Y E and it's available in uh, uh, online on any kind of a search engine and it it's it says the same thing. Oh there it is from Carlita has uh, there she goes poets.org what a, what a source of all wisdom you are, Carlita. <laughs> I'm very happy to see that. Naomi Shehab Nye on kindness. Okay. What other things did you want to talk about or think about or mention uh, in anything I said or we did together this morning? <laughs> 